Hey people, welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we still believe that another world is possible and that if we all work together, there is time to create the future that we would be proud to leave to the generations that come after us. I'm Amanda Scott, your host in this journey into possibility. And today it's my great pleasure to welcome Chris Smage back to the podcast. When we last spoke in the spring in episode 166, we explored his book, A Small Farm Future, what it meant, how he came to write it, and what a small farm future might actually look and feel like. And while we were talking, we veered tangentially onto the topic of the eco-modernist agenda, and in particular, their embrace of precision fermentation as a means of feeding the world's population, largely, as far as I can tell, so that they can dispense with farming, which they don't like, and so they can make a lot of money out of selling us protein brewed in a stainless steel vat. Chris said then that he was writing something that would address this more directly, and he suggested he come back when it was ready. And now it is ready, and he has come back to talk about his new book, saying no to a farm-free future, the case for an ecological food system and against manufactured food. I was extremely glad to get an advanced reading copy and to read it through several times. It's brilliant. I love this book. It does exactly what it says in the tin and it does it well. Chris has a background in academia and his capacity for critical thinking shines through all of his writing on his blog, in his previous books, and in this one. And what he does with this is he examines the good and the bad of the eco-modernist agenda, and in particular, the new kid on the eco-modernist block, George Monbiot, and his latest tract, Regenesis. Because Regenesis isn't all complete nonsense. The taking apart of industrial farming is really very good. And Chris is much kinder than I tend to be at giving credit where credit is due. And then he uses his critical thinking and he really dives deeply into the assertions that are made by all of the eco-modernists and particular in Regenesis. He takes them apart, he looks at the numbers and he shows the rather large number of places where they really don't stack up. He looks at the alternatives. He looks at how we might live not in an eco-modernist world. And at the end, he makes a heartfelt, grounded, and I think rather beautiful plea for us to rediscover our human place as a good keystone species. Instead of feeling we have to wall ourselves up in urban jungles, in concrete boxes, eating manufactured food grown in stainless steel vats, you can tell, I don't think this is a good thing. So this was a meeting of minds and hearts, and I really enjoyed it, and I hope you do too. People of the podcast, please welcome Chris Smage, author of Saying No to a Farm-Free Future. Chris, welcome back to the Accidental Gods podcast. It's a delight to speak to you again and to have a copy of your new book in my hand. It'll be out shortly after this goes live. So it's called Saying No to a Farm-Free Future. Can you tell us a little bit about 
what you're saying no to, how it arose, and then how you came to write a book that explains an alternative viewpoint. Right. Well, uh, yeah, very nice to be on the uh, on the podcast again, Manda. Yeah. So the book it arose really as a critique of a movement known as eco-modernism, and specifically one of the latest books in that genre to talk about the food system, George Monbiot's book, Regenesis. So in a nutshell, the idea of eco-modernism is that, you know, we're the inheritors of the legacy of modernism, uh, which where we're talking about a modern, high-energy, high-capital urban existence, you know, the, the, the sort of familiar story of economic growth and development that was, uh, I, I guess, originated in Europe and foisted on the rest of the world in, in one way or another. And obviously that's led to all sorts of problems, you know, climate change, um, economic problems, biodiversity loss, you know, wherever you look really, there's a kind of problem caused by this kind of high energy, high capital urban way of life. And the eco-modernists, uh, it's kind of a, a, a sort of accelerationist kind of, you know, we're, we're, we've backed ourselves into this corner and, and the only way the only way out is is up or, you know, only only way is to further accentuate all those trends, but to try and do it in a way that, that, that solves the problems that have been created. So typically, um, uh, you know, I think there's kind of four key elements to eco-modernism. One is energy transition. You know, we need to have a lot of energy, but it can't be fossil fuels. So, you know, it tends right. to be, you know, historically, it tends to be very much a pro-nuclear mode of thinking. I mean, you know, maybe renewables, but, you know, low carbon energy, but nevertheless, high energy input. It tends to focus on biotech in the food system. So, you know, a lot of the original stuff was around GMOs. And, and now, of course, we're talking about so-called precision fermentation and, 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 you know, manufactured food. So a lot of my new book is basically critiquing um, the, the arguments around the latest biotech elements. The third thing is urbanism, you know, as we, the, the figure that's often uh, banded around is that now the, the, the planet is more urban than rural, more, more people living in towns and cities than the countryside. And so the argument is that, you know, that's a kind of baked in trend. You know, we are a city species now and we have to embrace that. And I guess kind of related to that is a focus on rewilding, you know, that human activities are, are causing devastation to wildlife and nature. And the best thing we can do is extricate humanity um, from wild places, uh, you know, live in cities, minimize our impact and, and let nature um, um, do its own thing. Um, so, yeah, that, that's the kind of basic eco-modernist package. So before we look into that proposal, specifically looking at food production, land use and the things that you're specifically interested in, can we take a slightly wider look at eco-modernism? Because it feels like it's been generated by people who live in cities, have no connection to anything that lives outside of a concrete box, probably grew up playing computer games. And as Simon Michaud has said, a lot on this podcast are completely untethered to any kind of logistical reality. And yet, they seem not to be necessarily stupid people. They, they, some of them write as if they are incredibly bright. And I haven't unpicked this in great depth, and I think you have. 
Do you have a sense of the world that they are trying to build? Are they genuinely wanting us all to live in concrete boxes with VR headsets on existing in the metaverse and eating everything that's been produced in stainless steel vats? And if, if they are, what is humanity when we do that? What is their vision for humanity? Or is it just that they hate humanity so much they want to corral us all into small spaces and then the rest of the world will be free of, of the kind of plague of homo sapiens? <laughs> well, there's a lot, of, uh, yeah, yeah, a lot of things wrapped up in that question. I mean, I would say, conversely, a lot of them argue that they love humanity and that it's the traditional Greens that kind of hate humanity and, and sort of want to get rid of, you know, urban civilization and all the rest of it. But what I, I what I would say is, I mean, they are very smart, a lot of these people, but one of the problems with being smart is that you can use your smartness <laughs> in different ways. You know, you can you can accept certain parameters and, and then, you know, drill down deeply within those parameters without seeing the bigger picture. And I think there is a a lack of seeing the bigger picture, except in as much as I think some of them would argue, you know, look, we're in, uh, we're in so deep in the mire. We've got to do things so quickly that the only way out is more of the same. Uh, but that's where I think they're making a really catastrophic error. But I think it's interesting the way you frame it in terms of the sort of urban dystopia. You know, my feeling is that there's a kind of utopian aspect, which is sort of like, you know, living on a campus in a lovely city like Seattle, say. I've, I've spent <laughs> Where a they time to in be Seattle living. many years ago. Right. I mean, you know, it's um, you can have a nice life there. You know, there's some lovely buildings. You can be on the university and the campus thinking great thoughts. And then you can sort of hike off into the mountains and sort of enjoy nature as a kind of as a spectator, you know, and so I think that is the utopia that they sort of want for humanity. Wow. But I think the reality is more, as you say, there's a kind of dystopian direction it's going to go in, which is cheap manufactured food for the poor, you know, corralling people, you know, it's going to be, yeah, it's kind of a logic of enclosure for the remaining rural population. I mean, maybe we can come on to that in more detail, because there are some sort of interesting yes, complexities yes. there. But I think it's very much that kind of policy wonkery, solving problems top down, somebody with their sort of sat at their computer, solving the problems of the world for everybody else. And, you know, we, we've talked before about philanthrocapitalism, you know, it's very much the sort of Bill Gates mentality that leave it to really smart, rich, clever people like me. And, you know, I've got all the solutions and everyone needs to just listen to me because I'm smart and I've got financial backing. And I think, yeah, that is a really, really deep problem with it. It is implicitly or explicitly a, a kind of a form of colonialism and a sort of top-down solutionism, which is going to be foisted on people in really quite problematic ways. Yes, I love the word solutionism. It also seems to me that it completely blinkers itself to all of the externalities except for carbon. There's this, you know, we've got to produce energy. We've got to have exactly the same amount of energy. However we produce it is magical thinking of technology that doesn't exist yet. And we're going to solve this one problem that we have perceived and hyped. And we can argue whether it's true or not later, that livestock are bad because methane. And mm. having got our heads around that and decided that a plant-based diet is the answer without looking at any of the externalities of the plant-based diet, we're then going to fix that one problem and everything else will then be fine. And 
there's no systemic thinking there. There's there's not even the slightest bit of let's look at the whole picture, which just seems very, very strange until you begin to drill down, I think, into follow the money as ever. And yeah. you know, a man is not going to see the issues with his stance if his income depends on his not seeing it, or indeed a whole group of people. But let's let's take a step in then towards the food and farming that is the basis of George Monbiot's book, Regenesis, and then is largely the basis of your book saying no to a farm-free future, because farming is your thing. Small Farm Futures is your blog, and it's what you're really focused on. Mm. And so let's hone in on your specific topic and your field of expertise, which is farming and food systems and rural life, because I think you and I both value that. I know if someone herded me into a city, it would be like putting a tiger into a cage. I, I would pace for a while and then I would just sit down and die. I couldn't do it. And I, I'm completely aware that some people love living in cities and that's completely fine. But the idea that they're going to pristine wilderness by herding us all into boxes just leaves me extremely unwell. So let's look in more detail at the food and farming system, which is your field and which is also the basis mm -hmm. of Mumbio's regenesis. And if you could explain a little bit what we believe the proposal to be, other than my meta-analysis of gloop and stainless steel tanks, which doesn't sound appetizing and probably isn't what they have in mind. And then let's look more deeply at what the alternatives might be. First of all, why it doesn't work in your view, and then how we could do things better that would solve not only the problem they've identified, but the broader problems. Okay, so a big focus of the Regenesis book and of this kind of new drive in eco-modernism is so-called precision fermentation, which I think is a bit of a PR term. I try and avoid using it. I, I use the term manufactured food, which is a bit more vague. But the, the, the technique Lana, let's, essential... Yes, let's see what it is, because precision fermentation does sound very shiny, 21st century, you know, it's got that sense of gene splicing and it's technological, so it must be good. And fermentation, everybody knows fermentation is good. There's a whole... Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think there's elements of kind of scienceiness plus wholesomeness, you know, is a, is a sort of winning formula, you know. But, but yeah, I mean, the, the, the basic um, method is to take a bacterium that originated in the soil. It's a hydrogen oxidizing bacterium that kind of lives on the margins of, of a kind of aerobic and anaerobic environment in the soil. So you basically feed it hydrogen, which it oxidizes and grows and so basically the the manufactured food technique is to grow this bacterial culture in a stainless steel bioreactor and you end up with a big load of bacterial biomass which is very high in protein and uh, that is the basis of food manufacture now we can talk about the the rights and wrongs of that sorry yes I don't know, it's fine. I just wanted to ask about what are the inputs? Because I listened to an Nate Hagen's podcast a little while ago with somebody who sounded like he knew what he was talking about, saying there are no seven colours of hydrogen, all hydrogen is black. And that means right. all, hydrogen, all hydrogen has a huge energy cost and some of it also has an emissions cost. So if I've understood, we take our little friendly bacterium, we feed it hydrogen and oxygen from the air, I guess. And... And then it multiplies yeah. itself and then we eat it because it's going to taste nice. And right. let's look at actually that, the nutritional exactly right. value That's later. exactly right. 
Yeah, I mean, it's not necessarily that friendly a bacterium, so that's that's one set of issues to, to you know oh, to, to to the you know I'm not a kind of nutritional expert, but yeah, it's high in nucleic acids and endotoxins, and so there's you know there's a lot of questions about how you get to the final product. But that's and what are the outcomes? leaving that aside? So, so you have a potential feedstock that is hugely energy intensive, and then you might have toxic outflows. Yay! Yeah, I mean, toxic to, to humans anyway. So, you, you know, that's something that, that has to be addressed and, you know, arguably They'll just can put be. them into the uh, sea. I mean, you know. Everything goes in the sea eventually. <laughs> I mean, I the other day they found with, microplastics um, at the bottom of the Marianas Trench. It's terrifying. Oh, right. <laughs> anyway, yeah, sorry. yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but I think the key point is the one you made about the hydrogen. So you have to feed it hydrogen. The reason why a lot of eco-modernists are excited about this is because potentially it has less land take than traditional forms of farming, you know, which is maybe something we can talk about. You know, farming yes. uses sunlight. Sunlight is a free zero carbon input, but it's diffuse. And therefore, you know, that's why most people have lived rurally through history, because we have to spread out in order to harness the sun. So, you know, the advantage of this technique from that kind of eco-modernist, you know, let's all live in cities and let's leave nature alone viewpoint is that we can produce food on a lower land area. The problem with it is that you have to feed these bioreactors a bunch of stuff. And as you said, the most important thing is hydrogen. Where do you get the hydrogen from? 99% of hydrogen nowadays um, comes from fossil fuels. Um, you know, if we're pushing this as a, a as a kind of environmentally friendly technique, it can't come from fossil fuels. It has to come basically by electrolyzing water. In order to do that, you need a lot of electricity. So where do we get low carbon electricity from? Well, we can get it from nuclear power. We can get it from renewables, but it's from the a sun. tremendous. <laughs> this amazing yeah, diffuse yeah, power well, source. Yeah. Well, yeah, it, I mean, that's exactly right. You know, if you look at a plant and its leaves or you look at solar panels, and I mean, I talk about solar panels quite a bit in the book because I think solar electricity is emerging as the most promising uh, form of renewable electricity, but it's quite land intensive in itself. You know, you need a lot of panels. Now, you need less panels than, than if we were growing this protein through traditional farming methods. But obviously, the panels, you know, it's a hugely, you know, it's a high tech industrial process that takes a lot of energy itself and produces ultimately a lot of junk that uh, has to be recycled. But I mean, the, the key point, it does depend a lot on your view about energy futures. I know there are some people who kind of think we're on the cusp of this revolution where we're going to be producing all this cheap renewable energy. But you have to bear in mind that with this so-called precision fermentation, what we're going to have to do is decarbonize all of the existing energy systems. So, you know, all of the industry, all of the transport, all of the manufacturing. And then on top of that, Instead of using the sun to energize farming, we're, you know, we're going to have to be using additional electricity to produce all this food. And, you know, I try and crunch the numbers as best I can. And it, it's hard, actually, because there's a lot of articles boosting this whole technique that don't really talk about the energy. You have to do quite a bit of detective work to get behind the energy figures. But... Yeah, you know, I, to my mind, it, it's basically a non-starter energetically. I mean, if we were going to feed all the protein or still more, if we're trying to feed all the calories to people, 
uh, we would have to use kind of orders of magnitude more electricity than we than we have available presently. So I think it's a it's a non-starter on on energetic grounds, and that's not really been figured into to the debate. And obviously, there are industries. There's this huge pressure on all industries to decarbonize, and but there are industries like steel making, for example, where you know there's not very many options to decarbonize steel making other than you know using electricity, sort of high high voltage kind of arc production of steel, for example. Whereas with farming uh, or food production, there is another option using the sun. <laughs> so you know my argument is uh, if we've got this zero carbon source of energy that we can use in a key industry, namely food production, we should be using it um, because you know we, we're going to have a big enough job decarbonizing the rest of it without overloading it with you know a, a, another high energy use. So anyway, that's my little energy rant over. Uh, I think there was another yes. part to your question. Let's let's carry on with where we're going, because I was very struck in your book by your analysis of the numbers. And I think quoting numbers is something that we could get into, but I don't think people need to read the book for the detail. But it seemed to me that the the basic maths that had been done on the energy return over energy invested, say, of these proteins and whatever else they want us to eat from the vats was basically fundamentally wrong. So first of all, it was going to take a lot more energy to produce than they had allowed for. And there was this bizarre idea, exactly as you said, that we're going to have some kind of infinite energy source such that we'll be very happy to put huge amounts of energy. It was something like 25% of the current energy production into producing our food. When in every future world I can look forward to, as in I have the capacity to look forward to, we're going to massively reduce our energy consumption. Mm. And and then the only bit that makes sense is remembering that there are little tiny solar panels called stalks of grass out there on the hills mm. that are absorbing sun all of the time. And then we have these four-footed converters that turn cellulose that we can't digest into things that we can, and we can give them a really good life. And the soil can be restored and regenerated while they're doing it. And that seems to be one of the big things that the eco-modernists are missing with their desperate attempt to reduce land surface area. Because Regenesis starts with a very good analysis of why industrial farming is an extraordinarily bad idea. On every possible mm. metric, from animal welfare, it's it's truly obscene, to the idea that you keep cows, cattle on concrete and then you throw soy that you've grown in Brazil at them and you walk past and you spray them, you know, you drive past in a great big truck, you spray them with water every 20 minutes because otherwise they die because they're out in the sun in Nevada. It, every And then you feed them antibiotics because otherwise they're going to die anyway. And then we're eating food that has got completely the wrong, say, omega-3, omega-6 balance amongst lots of other things, is full of antibiotics and growth hormones and we wonder why we're all very sick. I have recently, <laughs> I'm halfway through reading Metabolical by Robert Lustig, which is just, I thought I understood about nutrition. And now I'm realising I don't. And his yeah. absolute bottom line is eat real food. And industrially farmed food is not real food. I think mm. we don't take that on board. And it's externality. It's the huge runoff of nitrates, the huge off-gassing of nitrous oxide into the atmosphere, which is a massive greenhouse yeah. gas. So all of the reasons why industrial farming is bad are true. But regenerative farming 
isn't all of those things. And it seems that Mumbio's gone, okay, industrial farming bad, all farming bad. And you have other ways of looking at farming. You've got your three categories of farming. Do you want to talk us into why those might not be bad? Yeah, I mean, maybe we should just go straight into the the sort of agroecological or regenerative approach. Or maybe another context that, you know, the industrial approach, I think, is essentially you know, you can cite lots of figures about how terrible modern agriculture is, but it's kind of hard to distinguish it from the, partly from the larger economy and what drives people to do as they do. I mean, you know, there's kind of a lot of finger pointing at at farmers, um, but, you know, farmers are essentially responding to the the, the larger economic drivers. So there's, there's a lot of criticisms of the farm system that are actually really criticisms of our society generally, but also farming, um, you know, is very much a derivative of the the fossil energy system. So, you know, you mentioned that the production of synthetic fertilizer is a key one. Um, you know, the whole kind of global supply chain and you know the kind of transport and traction technologies behind modern farming and the agrochemicals. So. You know, one certainly part of the eco-modernist critique of, of existing farming is that it's catastrophic for nature, which is correct. That doesn't necessarily have to apply to farming in, in, in general. I mean, it, it is good to leave as much as we can of areas unfarmed, although that kind of has issues as well, because, you know, it, it depends what happens with the unfarmed areas and, and you know, what what we're expecting to get out of that. But the real onslaught on nature is partly climate change driven by the the fossil energy system and also the extraction of people from the the food and farming system, which we've gone for all of these labour sparing technologies, which ultimately are ecocidal technologies, you know, agrochemicals, you know, you can have a huge field with, you know, one person in a tractor managing it with synthetic fertilisers and um, pesticides. It produces cheap food, and that leads into another aspect of this is that we've got this kind of overproduction of essentially grains, you know, cereals and grain legumes that the whole global modern food system is based on that. And they can be produced cheaply in money terms, but as you say, there's all these externalities that include the onslaught on nature, but also the loss of human communities from farming, you know, the urbanisation and and you know, going back to that earlier part of our conversation, the urbanisation is—we're basically talking about slum dwelling. You know, it's not—it's not that kind of um, you know university campus in Seattle way of life. So yeah, we you know we need to thoroughly change that. But it's the overproduction of cheap grains, cereals, and grain legumes, and that leads to agricultural expansion. So there's a kind of cheapness underlying the whole global farming system. So then. Farmers um, or agribusinesses will do whatever they can do to add value. So that might be pouring these grains down the throats of livestock, or increasingly these days producing biofuels, you know, which is a complete mm. disaster in sorts of ways, and expanding the agricultural land take in order to try and sort of keep your head above water in the in the kind of economic arms race. So now we need to think about it in a completely different way, and the way we need to think about it is communities, small communities feeding themselves. Now that does have nature impacts potentially, but you know there's all sorts of ways in which we can bring nature back into our farmed landscape 
you know, much more diverse cropping and cropping for human needs. You know, there's the, partly it's a kind of feedback mechanism thing, you know, and particularly if you don't have cheap energy available, you know, you can't just sort of take a big tractor and lay waste to the whole landscape. You know, you're, you're basically in this, you know, you are a, an ecological protagonist like all the other creatures trying to produce your food. But when you've produced enough food, you stop, you know, you don't try and produce more and cheaper and flood global markets. And you have to be smart about the way you do it. You know, you have to start thinking in terms of, of dealing with pests by having um, wild predators of the pests by building in diversity. And, you know, and all of that kind of feeds through into a more nature-friendly, a more land-sharing agriculture. And I think, you know, one of the problems with the eco-modernist take is, is essentially... Uh, you know, I think Monbiot says somewhere in his book, the problem with intensive agriculture is not the adjective, it's the noun. I mean, he's basically yes. just given up on agriculture in general. And I would say, I mean, the word intensive is, you know, has many meanings and, and, and can mislead. But I would say the problem with our agriculture is the adjective, you know, uh, fossil fueled, um, industrial, capitalist driven, you know, whatever, whatever the adjectives you want to apply there, you know, it is the modern model of agriculture that is fundamentally problematic. And, and you know, it's not only agriculture, it's other aspects, you know, road building, urbanization, you know, light pollution in terms of insects and so on. But, you know, agriculture is definitely up there. But yeah, the key point is that What's bad about it is that it's fossil fueled, you know, so it, it, it's another, it, it, as it were, it's become a kind of a subsidiary of fossil fueling, you know, and that's, that's the problem. And it's, um, you know, it's that, it's that economic drive to overproduction that is so problematic. My second rant Thank now you. over. No, 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 that's, <laughs> it's, but it's good. I can't remember if it was on your blog or somewhere else, but somebody referred to the two types of capitalism that are intertwined with carbon capitalism and nitrogen capitalism, and that our right. farming system is nitrogen capitalism. We are just basically going to give the boys some very big toys to drive yeah. around in, and and then they can destroy the soil by spraying it with whatever we give them. And again, yeah. I think it was in your book, somebody talking about regenerative farming said, yield is vanity profit is sanity. And I hadn't really got my head around the extent to which the average industrial farmer might have a turnover of, let's say, half a million pounds a year. But of that half a million pounds, 95% is going to the agribusiness companies. And so yeah. their actual income at the end of the year, they're working for less than the minimum wage. But because the money is mm. flowing through the bank and because the numbers look big and because when they meet up, it's all about, well, how many you know, tons per hectare did you get? They're not realizing that, that fundamentally they're, they're working very long hours, very hard to keep Monsanto in business. And part <laughs> of it seems to me how they get away with that is that we all, to an extent, internalized the idea that the only way to feed the world is is this industrial agriculture that, that we will not, quote, feed the world. There are poor, starving people somewhere else, but not here, who need to be fed mm. by us using our industrial techniques. And what I really got from your book was the extent to which that myth is not true. Do you want yeah. to talk us through a little bit about how other forms of non-industrial agriculture work in other parts of the world where you don't see fields of 100 hectares with a single tractor trundling up and down them all day. Right. 
Yeah, I can try and do that. And perhaps, you know, just to build on what you were just saying there, one of the problems is that that notion that we need industrial agriculture to to feed people has been really iniquitous. I mean, it, it's actually the, the other way around that so much poverty and hunger has been caused by this pursuit of cheap grains that you know, have all sorts of negative consequences. And, and as you say, a lot of the, the farmers, um, you know, the wealthier farmers, the more mechanised farmers in the in the richer countries or, or, or richer farmers, you know, that nobody is really making much money out of agriculture. Um, you know, they're pretty leveraged, but there's this kind of global race to the bottom where more and more production, you know, we flood the market with cheap food commodities that pushes you know, other farmers, poorer farmers out of business or pushes them into, you know, basically everyone gets pushed into specialization. And, you know, that's an element of the of the eco-modernist critique that then becomes problematic is, you know, for example, in the UK, there's, a, a you know, production of, of sheep in the uplands and, you know, debates about whether that's a good thing or not. But the trouble is every region gets forced into monocropping essentially the mm. The, the one or the handful of products that it has some type of comparative advantage over in you know in the global market and what we need is for communities wherever they are and, and obviously everywhere is different everywhere has its own climate and and history and, and topography you know what we need is for people to be feeding themselves to be sort of solving you know these big global problems are ultimately going to be solved at the local level by people feeding themselves and furnishing their livelihoods. So, you know, that's what we need to get into, not this kind of global race to the bottom of, you know, whatever the the kind of cheapest way of producing food is. So, yeah, you know, an example here, I suppose, you know, I live on this little holding uh, with my wife and, and a bunch of other people in Somerset and we produce vegetables is our main thing but we have a little bit of livestock not much and we have a lot of trees which have all sorts of functions and and kind of also have a mind of their own you know I sort of planted a bunch of trees and then nature kind of takes over and says oh actually Chris you know you shouldn't have planted those trees there I'm gonna do something else with you know so it's sort of like that's part of what wildness is I think is not you know that it's kind of the antithesis of (laughs) eco-modernism it's like not trying to control all the variables and trying to solve everything you know is is actually being a protagonist in a world that you're not completely in control of but obviously you know you do want to control it to a degree you want to produce food and uh, you know the uk historically we have uh, imported a lot of fruit and vegetables in recent years because it's labor intensive basically and modern farming labor is dear fossil energy is cheap and so we t- anything that you can do with fossil energy in rich countries, we've tended to go down that route and then either import cheap labor or import products of cheap labor. So, you know, what we do here is grow vegetables and produce our own subsistence as much as we can on the site. And that brings nature in and it brings people into the site. And those two things are not not contradictory. I mean, you know, it's true that if you want to have tigers and, um, and, and wolves and such like, you, you do need uh, some big wild spaces in the world, but that can be that can be fostered by not overproducing these cheap grains by people actually 
producing the food that they need, you know, good whole food locally. Of course, then that has huge implications for social transformation. And I think that's where we get stuck into the eco-modernist narrative. It's like, you know, the the idea of de-urbanizing, the idea of people having access to small areas of land to produce their food, then Monbiot in some of his recent articles has talked about a bucolic idyll. I mean, that's that's just the wrong way of thinking about it. You know, there's a huge, it's not about some romantic idea of going back to the past. It's about, you know, solving our livelihood problems from the ground up. But it does require letting go of that kind of modernist mindset that, you know, urban, more energy, more mechanization, more technology is inherently good. So, yeah, you know, and people are, people are, figuring this out in all sorts of ways locally you know I, I think that's one of the problems with this whole debate is that uh, you know with our sort of short-term modern media mindset we sort of want people to come on and say yeah i've got the answer and it's this you know it's precision fermentation or it's nuclear energy whatever it is you know there isn't one answer you know there are there are lots of answers they're going to be different in different places and different for different people and so we need to sort of somehow foster a culture of that kind of pluralism um, and, and that kind of bottom-up creating livelihoods and not, you know, not necessarily solving problems. I talk about uh, this a bit in the book, you know, it's, 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 you know, there are ways that we can address problems socially as well as technologically, and we can't always solve problems, but we can learn to live with them in various ways. So, you know, and that's what you do as a farmer every day, you know, it's not Sometimes producing higher yield um, is good, but often uh, that can come at a cost. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's about co- a complex set of trade-offs that you're wrestling with all the time, you know, not some simple solution and, you know, not some simple drive to high yield or low cost or whatever it might be. So that in, in a nutshell, I suppose, is how I'd answer. Yes. And it opens so many avenues to go down because yet again, we get to the idea that this is a systemic issue, that it's being driven by economics of growth. I don't hear any degrowth narrative in any of the eco-modernist tracts. If it's there and someone listening is an eco-modernist, please tell me about it. Um, But it does seem to be predicated on still producing as much stuff as possible from the smallest possible area. And you wrote in the book, The idea in a nutshell is that to reduce the impact of farming on wildlife, the two main options are either to reduce the area that's farmed, and I would say that's obviously there, let's build precision fermentation plants and leave the farms Mm. and replace it with wildlife habitat, which is land sparing, or else to make farmed areas themselves more wildlife friendly, which is land sharing. And you say best of all, of course, would be to do both at the same time. And you go on and say there are ways to spare land other than increasing yields and increasing yields doesn't necessarily spare land. And I wonder how we see you and I a future 20, 30, 40 years from now where the eco-modernist way hasn't worked because it can't work because there isn't enough stuff. You know, per Simon and me show the material flows are not going to allow for mm. precision fermentation vats in every village or building cities up to being five, six, seven times the size they are now and herding everybody into them. We just can't do that because the stuff isn't there. If the land sharing and sparing altogether comes about what you're calling the small farm future, how do we 
encourage more people back to the land? And what does it look like if we do? What, do we, what are we wearing? What are we eating? How are we living that doesn't feel like we just switched off the 21st century clock and gone back to medieval Europe? Right. Well, it's it's a tricky one. I mean, I think, you know, whichever vision of the future that one espouses these days, um, you know, I think there's a kind of rough road ahead. You know, there's no, as I was just saying, there are no simple solutions. I mean, I think the way that it plays out at its best is that, uh, and, and I can see various sort of utopian and dystopian outcomes with, you know, with all scenarios, but you know, already I think a lot of farmers, for exactly the reason that you were just mentioning, they're so leveraged. You know, they're so they, 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 there's so many inputs, and you know the prices that they get are, are so poor that a lot of farmers are already kind of stepping off that uh, input-intensive treadmill and trying to engage, you know, on a more human scale, more more locally, more directly with customers and so on. And meanwhile, a lot of people, a lot of non-farmers are getting interested in food, wanting to grow fruit and veg in their gardens, wanting to have an allotment, you know, getting involved in community gardens and, and you know, gardening our, our spaces. And I think, you know, that is, that is the trend that we, that we have to build on. You know, a lot of farmers are getting into kind of stacking enterprises on their farm, so bringing more people back. So, you know, rather than saying... You know, I've got to have bigger fields, bigger tractor, get rid of the hedges, um, yeah. you know, try and, you know, try and win at that um, game of overproduction that ultimately, as we were saying, you know, they're never going to win at. So it's it's more a case of downscaling, you know, bringing other people in, bring, you know, I know a lot of uh, other small market growers like us who have got some land, you know, on, a, on an existing larger farm. I mean, obviously where that gets tricky is long term i think the politics of land ownership or access to land and you know that is something i think you know is the debate that we really need to be having now is how can how can people access land in a secure way that gives them the ability to produce food locally for themselves in that that kind of a sort of local feedback mechanisms um and, and you know the politics of that i think are going to be tough in a lot of places but potentially, you know, I think if we, uh, you know, if you have people who are pressing for access to land and we've got a situation where chemical inputs are becoming manifestly more problematic, you know, higher prices, you know, a lot of farmers are looking for ways, you know, to have better succession on their land and to have more people involved. So, you know, there is the potential for a kind of virtuous circle of people you know, cost of living crisis, price of food in the shops going up, you know, trying to think about being a, an ecological protagonist locally, trying to sort of develop, you know, a, a complex wise food system locally. If we can find ways to come together and get access to local food and local production mm -hmm. and, and sort of see ourselves as part of the process, then I think there are possibilities. But you know, there's no two ways about it. It's, it's potentially, you know, it's going to be difficult and it's going to involve conflict. But the same is true, you know, uh, of the, 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 the sort of eco-modern. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. you know, my my fear is that the, you know, the eco-modernist dystopia is going to be like, well, you know, we need to preserve nature. So we need to get people out of the countryside. So you have essentially, you know, which and that's 
how a lot of urbanization has been fostered historically is essentially give people no option but to be in the city and you know and then you're sort of dependent on this all these processes of high energy input controlling to the nth degree the 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 lives that people lead and i don't think that's going to work long term so you know we've got to move i think towards you know smaller scale more localized systems of livelihood production in which people are protagonists within that and are kind of part of the the ecological feedback mechanisms and you know that ultimately involves a politics of access to land which you know we haven't really had in this country for many years because we have been so sold on this kind of urban high capital high energy route but that's going to change uh, whether we like it or not i think yes let's look at that because reading your previous book and reading around it the whole of the enclosures not just in scotland but the herding of people into urban areas in england seem to me a very deliberate process by the holders of capital to make people dependent on the jobs that they wanted them to do. Because if they stayed in the country, mm. they were basically self-sufficient and they, they could say no to being made to work in a mill and losing their arms yeah. or whatever else. Or as somebody once said, what they were offered was coming out of the country where it's dirty, wet and cold. You can live in this nice, clean city, brackets, slum, and you <laughs> and your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren for seven or eight generations are going to die horribly of typhoid. But by the eighth generation, they'll have internal plumbing and central heating. Yay. <laughs> and that was not the greatest offer in the world. And now we have the eco-modernist idea, which seems to have, amongst its many, many other glitches, the uber glitch that somehow we the people are going to retain some kind of control over the food that we're eating, and it's not going to all be in the hands of the capitalists who currently control the industrial food system. And quite how Mombi or anybody else thinks we're going to wrestle that back Mm. Is, is a great mystery. And, and reading Robert Lustig, he says 93% of Americans currently have metabolic disease, which is to say their mitochondria don't work. There are babies being born obese, being born with mitochondria that don't work and getting fatty liver syndrome, which used to be the purview of the alcoholics in their 60s. And they're getting it now as children because of a food system that offers people cheap and addictive processed food that is killing them. So mm. you know, either this is a very slow technique to get rid of humanity, possible, but I would have thought if you really wanted to get rid of humanity, there are faster ways. Or it's just people who do not give uh, anything at all, just looking to make money. And they're going to continue to do that. You know, Bill Gates has said he thinks he's going to make an awful lot of money out of processed proteins. And guess who is mm. funding The Guardian? And a lot of the eco-modernist <laughs> movement follow the money. So let's look at the politics of access to land, because one of the other things that I heard recently, someone who, so we're going to have to go to Chatham House Rules here, because I can't say who told me this, but they had been in conversation with, quote, the minister, who I assume to be the current minister of agriculture, who said they would be really happy with 40% churn in the farming industry. And that's not small farmers going out of business and other small farmers buying their land. That's small farmers going out of business and friends of the government buying their land and turning it into whatever it is they want to turn it into. Mm. 40%. I mean, I think there's a huge naivety um, in, in, in all of this and, and in the kind of urban argument that, 
you know, somehow, you know, we're, we're going to be wealthy enough and we're going to have enough energy at our command to keep this whole show on the road. And I mean, you know, this is one of the things that really concerns me about eco-modernism, you know, globally is that it's, you know, to use an appropriate agricultural metaphor, it's putting all our eggs in one basket and sort of saying, you know, if you think of these huge cities, um, globally, you know, Mumbai or Mexico City or where, you know, they, there's a huge amount of energy, you know, to service them, to get the water, to get the food, to get all the materials in, and then to process all the wastes. Now, if you think that, you know, we're going to have this kind of uh, abundant, clean energy future, you know, that's, uh, maybe you can entertain that notion. But I think the reality is, I mean, you talked about nitrogen capitalism earlier, that was exactly how, you know, that first phase of urbanization happened prior to that uh, you know nice book by carolyn Steele, hungry city where you know prior to the modern period you didn't really have big cities apart from the odd colonial one like rome or then somewhere like london you know because you needed to service them from their hinterlands you know the modern mega cities you can't do that uh, and so with you know anyone living in those kind of cities they're really investing in the notion that there's going to be this smooth and, um, you know, highly um, energy intensive flow of goods in and wastes out. And, you know, I don't, that's not going to work energetically and materially. And also, you know, geopolitically, if you look at the, the, the global centers, you know, you look at all the issues now with sort of Russia and Ukraine, say, and, you know, Ukraine as a global breadbasket. I mean, it's incredibly high risk game to sort of think that we can concentrate all these people in these cities and continue servicing them. And there is an ambiguity there in the eco-modernist approach, I think, where they kind of say, you know, people like me have got it all wrong. You know, they're not they're not arguing for uh, urbanization or at least not forced urbanization. Like all they want is for people to stop farming in damaging ways and we can rewild and there'd be lots of work involved in um you know, looking after hedges and, and wetlands and so on. And, you know, I, I think I think that's naive. I mean, you know, it was the same argument with the enclosures um, in Britain. That, you know, there'll be lots of work, um, you know, building hedges and fences. And, I mean, there was for a few years. And then, you know, then, then we... we'll ship then we you all off to Canada because we can. Exactly, exactly. You know, and then we're looking at huge underemployment uh, or unemployment in the countryside. And, and you know, I think it'll it'll be the same thing. So I, you know, I also think there's a naivety in um, the uh, Monbiot's approach to manufactured food, where he sort of views it as kind of like a local cottage industry, with every, you know, every town or village having its little manufactured food plant. And I, you know, I think this is an important point where, if you look at manufacturing industry globally, um, you know, it is inherently monopolistic. I mean, you know, a hundred years ago there was. I think there's a figure, something like 300 different makes of car in France alone, you know, that were all manufactured in these little local garages. I mean, you know, there's not even 300 makes of car globally now. You know, there's there's a huge industrial um, tendency towards monopolization, um, you know, driven by sort of energy and manufacturing economies and of scale. And the accumulation of capital. And the accumulation of capital, exactly so. You know, the capital uh, seeks the best returns on capital. And it will be the same with manufactured food. And, you know, the point that the eco-modernists make is, well, the food system is already um, highly corporatized and concentrated. And that's true, but much less so than the manufacturing system because, you know, it's harder 
to, uh, to, to turn food production and land ownership, you know, it's harder to turn that into a corporate manufacturing style monopoly. I mean, you know, you can't really just have one factory somewhere producing um, fruit and vegetables, say, but you can Unless have one Unless one person owns all the land. Well, yeah, but you know, there, there's there's oh, all sorts of reasons why there has been a tendency towards land concentration and, and corporatization in the food system. But you know, there's there's all sorts of countervailing tendencies in a way that isn't really the case with manufacturing industry. So, okay, there's not just one car factory, but you know, how many how many car factories are there globally? Um, you know, and this is a real danger, I think, with the manufactured food um, idea is that. You know, in principle, you can say, oh, well, we need to fight for open source and, and, and you know, to keep it local. But I mean, how successful has that fight been in, in you know, in every other dimension of, of manufacturing industry? Whereas with land access, you know, it is also an unequal fight. I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to sort of uh, suggest that, um, you know, there's easy access to land and, and local food. But much less so. There's, there's, you know, if you look around any area, there's gardens, allotments, small farms, people producing food in, in all sorts of ways, and that's what we need to amplify. That, you know, that political fight to have access to producing local food. You know, it's much easier to build that on, um, you know, on on essentially ecological food production than it is on industrial food manufacture. I want to move to ecological food production and keystone species in a second, but I'm still really interested in how you see the politics of access to land playing out. Because current government, happy with 40% churn, which is to say essentially land moving up the capital ladder. I can't imagine any other government of any other colour likely to be elected in the UK in the near future changing that. And much as I would like a different political system, I don't know that we've got a huge amount of time to create one. How do you see us regaining our access to our land? I would love it if every village had a, a zone around it of, I don't know, 10 miles where everybody within that zone had access to the land and then you, mm. you know, villages would grow and people would would farm the land, one hopes. Some of them would turn them into motorbike rallying areas, but quite soon that wouldn't happen because we kind of run out of oil. How How would we sensibly regain access to the land? And to what extent do you think we would begin to move towards a model of cities exurbanizing people coming out of the cities mm. to villages because they want to work the land? It seems to me, given the possibility, a lot of people actually enjoy growing stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I don't want to sound overly optimistic and sort of present this as something that's going to be easy, but I will try and give my most optimistic version of it, which is kind of along the lines that you said. I mean, the you know, the old idea of the green belt was exactly as you said, for um, towns and villages to have green land around them that could produce food. And it's sort of become this, oh, let's keep people out of the countryside and not have people living there. You know, we need to get out of that mindset of people living in the countryside being inherently a bad thing. I think that will happen, um, you know, partly because of, as you said, the accumulative nature of the global economy, the, the fact that more and more people 
you know, the old idea of having a, a sort of career that, you know, you would sort of get gradually more prosperous and your children would be uh, richer than you were. And we're all on this kind of upwards trajectory that doesn't wash anymore. You know, young people are under no illusions that they're going to have this lucrative career. So I think they, you know, are quite key in terms of can't buy land. I can't buy a house. I can't, you know, I, I can't get a steady job. But, you know, I want to have some kind of meaningful existence. Likewise, you know, cost of living crisis, you know, from a sort of top down government perspective, keeping affordable food um, in the shops, I think is going to get harder and harder. So I think in one way or another, and hopefully it will be in a in a sort of positive, manageable way, there will be uh, people moving out of cities looking to you know, ultimately, it's going to happen because it has to happen. You know, as I said earlier, because sunlight is diffuse, we have to be diffuse. You know, and the quicker we can sort of cotton onto that, the better. But the way I can see it potentially working is there's a lot of farmers who are struggling to make things work within the existing system. There will be a lot of people locally within rural and agricultural areas wanting land, wanting to produce food. You know, the ideal is that if those people can come together and create a politics of land access, then the problem is not that we don't have enough land, it's that we don't do the right things on it and don't have the right people on it. You could, of course, get into some kind of landlordist situation in which the existing owners of land are like, great, you want a bit of land? Well, fine, show me the colour of your money. That's where the class politics have to come in. And, you know, we have to have you know, what some anthropologists call a moral economy of food production and access to land, you know, exactly how the tenure arrangements work out, you know, whether we're talking about commons or individual ownership or renting arrangements, you know, maybe we can get into that level of detail maybe another day. But the, the key thing is that there is access to land, that there is a moral economy in which people have access to land. But I think that's only going to come from bottom up, grassroots pressure, you know, of, of people making the case we need land. You know, other countries, obviously, it's much more of a living issue, you know, like in Brazil, for example, the landless workers movement, you know, there's a lot of peasant movements globally where the whole idea of preserving peasant agriculture and having access to land is very much more alive politically than it has been in, you know, rich countries like the UK or the US or Western Europe. But ultimately, I think it's going to be the same, same battle. Hmm. And do you think, sticking to Western Europe, or at least the and North America, the westernised, highly industrial world, I'm not seeing a lot of ground-up political pressure actually working. The, the political class seems to be kind of immune to any attempt to sway them from above. Do you think it'll, do you think that's breaking down fast enough that we'll be able well, to I mean, create my- that? Okay, so now time for my dystopia. (laughs) I mean, my fear is no. And what we're going to have is a real, potentially a kind of ultra nationalist sort of like we are in this global emergency, you know, we, um, you know, we, we need to sort of keep our end up in this fight with all these other countries. Let's Um, not go there. I regret asking this question already. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, that's why it's so important to get this message out, I think, and Mm. so important to critique the eco-modernist approach, because I think the eco-modernist approach, it's sort of well-meaning. It's kind of like, let's try and make a nice lifestyle. You know, let's try and deal with all these environmental problems and make a nice lifestyle. 
available to as many people, you know, a nice urban lifestyle as available to as many people as possible. But, you know, there is a sort of dystopian undercurrent, which is essentially do what you're told, let the policymakers figure this out. And, Mm. you know, and given that they won't be able to, where do we go from there? I think somewhere not particularly appealing. And that's why local food systems, local agroecology, kind of local access to land. You know, I'm not saying it's easy, but that's where we have to go, I think. Okay. So in our last few minutes, I want to read a little bit of your book. We're unlikely to succeed in rewilding farmed landscapes if we don't start rewilding ourselves, not through idle contemplation of nature, but through generating our livelihoods judiciously from our local ecological base, which is what you've been saying all the way along. But you talk towards the end of your book about becoming a good keystone species. And given that we've glitched over the dystopia bit, the idea of becoming a good keystone species seems to me potentially transformative because it acknowledges we are a keystone species, which I think the the almost white supremacist colonialism of the eco-modernists really seems to glitch over. I'm reminded a lot of my discovery that Ansel Adams, who was one of my childhood heroes when I was really into photography, but every single one of his beautiful, beautiful pictures had the unfortunate people who actually lived on the landscape pushed just out of shot. Right. And it seems that yeah. we we ignore the fact that most of North America, the Amazon, the places that we think of as pristine wild wilderness, partly because Ansel Adams' pictures and others like it, were being managed by the people who lived there. They weren't pristine wild. They were part, humans mm. were part of the landscape as a keystone species. So your idea mm. that what we need in the modern world is not to step back into medieval farming, but to become a good conscious, self-conscious keystone species strikes me as being a key narrative going forward. So can you tell us more about how you came to that, what it means for you and how you see it playing out? Right. Well, I mean, it's funny. I mean, a keystone species, I think, in ecological parlance um, just means one that has a disproportionate impact on its environment. And so it, I mean, you know, there's obviously debates about what it all means. But, you know, I think if you think about an animal like an elephant, or a beaver, they're kind of habitat engineers. And, you know, obviously there's this whole narrative about reintroducing beavers to Britain and people are like, it's great, you know, uh, watershed management, you know, it it sort of creates wetlands, it, it manages floods, it brings in other species. But humans are also habitat engineers, and yet we don't seem to be a good keystone species. It's like, oh, it's you know, it's great people coming in and and sort of uh, building cities and and industrial farms. You know, that's not so good. So, so you know, I guess my question in that part of the book is, you know, I think humans we can't help but be a keystone species. You know, we have a kind of outsize impact, but can we be a good keystone species like the beaver and not, you know, some some sort of, <laughs> you know, cataclysmic force on nature? And I mean, part of that is, is kind of what you were alluding to. I think there has been this notion, I mean, maybe we don't want to get too into the depths of it, but, you know, the, the, the history of ecology was very much this idea of a climax um, ecological state that, you know, if, if nature is left alone in, you know, in any particular place, you tend to get a certain type of flora and fauna. So here where I am in southern England, that would be deciduous woodland, for example. But a kind of a newer idea is that there's always disturbance. You know, it may be that if things are left to their own devices, it would tend to something or other. 
but things never are left to their own devices. There are always agents of disturbance and keystone species are one key aspect of that. So grazing herbivores, you know, you, you don't necessarily get forest succession because you have elephants or deer or whatever it might be that have other ideas. A, a fire is another big one, you know, not a big issue in, in Britain, although perhaps increasingly so, but, uh, you know, in a lot of parts of the world, you know, fire very much um, controls the kind of flora that you get. And kind of, as you were alluding to, a lot of indigenous peoples worldwide have used fire regimes to create certain kinds of habitats. And my argument is basically, you know, if we do that well, if you if you engineer the habitat well, then you know, a lot of good, you know, that that can produce what we want, you know, food and other items, but also be positive for nature. You know, disturbance regimens are not intrinsically bad for natural, you know, I mean, they might be bad for some creatures, but they're good for other ones. And so, you know, there's the whole sort of balance. But, uh, you know, the problem is that we have too much energy available in the system and we have too many kind of human symbolic systems of which capital I think is is the key one. So we we have all sorts of ways of kind of uber disturbance. You know, it's not kind of tweaking the local ecosystem to the benefit of the you know the humans that happen to live there, and you know that has some wildlife impacts, but is also beneficial to other wildlife. It's kind of you know making over the whole world in the image of a of a kind of um modern western consumer <laughs> and you know that that's not being a good keystone species that is using using energy and using capital badly and the problem i think you know that i hint at in that part of the book is that both in nature and in human systems you know colonialism is basically parasitizing somebody else's ecology and drawing all of that resource from them to the colonial core and that ultimately is what modernism is um you know that's why eco-modernism doesn't work because modernism doesn't work because it's based so on the problem that, is with you know. the noun not the adjective exactly yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know it doesn't work because it's a, a high energy high capital extractive system whereas if you're a, a kind of keystone species acting as a local protagonist you know, within a wider ecology that you are you know in some sense uh Aldo Leopold, pioneering ecologist, has that wonderful phrase, a plain member and citizen of the biotic community. You know, if we think of ourselves in that way, which doesn't mean we shouldn't farm, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't hunt necessarily or, you know, kill animals or plants or cut down trees. It's, you know, it's it's where we draw the lines. It's it's how we draw that into a renewable ecology is the key thing. And, you know, that's where I think we need to go with the keystone species idea. And what seems to me the big question that comes out of this is where do we draw our value system and our aims and goals in being a keystone mm. species? Because uh, we assume, I, I read today that a dung beetle is a keystone species. It's not planning the impact that it has, it's just being a dung beetle. What we've discovered by just being people is that while we're just being people for whom the accumulation of capital is our end goal, we're destroying everything around us. We're not being a good keystone mm -hmm. species. I would draw my values, aims and goals from spiritual practice, but that's not for everybody. How would you help people to draw aims, goals and values of being a good keystone species? What would you suggest that 
they do in order to consciously be keystone species? Well, I think I think you're exactly right to draw it back to spiritual values. And I think, you know, again, with this modernism term, you know, that's been part of the problem is that it, it kind of the whole notion of the enlightenment, this sort of idea that everybody before us was unenlightened and now we've seen the light and, you know, what is what is modernism? What is enlightenment? It's basically more capital, more energy, more, 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 more growth, mm. you know. And that's, you know, we need to find an ethic of limits and of incorporation into a wider system. And there are, you know, there are spiritual practices, uh, you know, I think we do need to, I mean, I talk a little bit at the very end of the book about distributism that emerged from Catholic social teaching. I mean, you know, I'm not saying that that's the only or the, the right way to go necessarily, but it's interesting that it draws from a kind of pre-modern tradition of which all great religions and, you know, all basically all enduring people have a kind of spiritual orientation to what we are and who we are and what our place in the world is. And I think the great problem with where we are now is that we are the children of a of an ideology that has essentially scorned that and focused on growth, essentially, growth of capital, of energy, of, of humanity. I don't see there to be any, again, it's, you know, there isn't a kind of eco-modernist style solution where it's like, don't worry, everybody, I've got the answer. Here it is. You know, here's your spirituality for you in, um, you know, just yeah. unscrew the, the cap and there it is. Yeah. I think or this switch is on a the long app term. These days. Yeah, switch on the app. Yeah, sorry. I'm already, I'm showing my, uh, how behind the times I am. Yeah, it's kind of long-term cultural process. I mean, I've read, I think, Tyson Yunkaporter, an Australian mm, Aboriginal Sam thinker, you know, Sam Talk is really good in sort of just showing the length of time that this is a kind of long-term cultural project that we need to be part of. But where I would start with it is just that acknowledgement of, you know, as you say, a spiritual practice about limits and also a material practice about livelihood creation. So it's like, I am going to try and produce food or key myself into where I get my food and the other uh, material aspects of my life. I'm, I'm going to try and take an interest in that in a way that is aware of limits and is aware aware of the consequences of it and aware of the ecology that it's part of. I mean, you know, we're starting from a low base and we don't have much time before some of this stuff just explodes in our faces, but at least to start is somewhere, you know, so to be aware of that kind of spiritual context to be aware that we need to build this long term you know we need to figure out access to land we need to figure out producing food and other material requisites as part of a renewable ecology you know we just need to be engaging with this and you know the culture will come long term and all we can do as as individuals and as communities is is try and feed into that process as constructively as we can ah uh. That felt like a really good place to end, but I've got so many more questions. Okay, we're not going to end just yet. So what I'm hearing from you is that inculcating a land-based spirituality is a long-term project and we don't have much time. I'm wondering, is it your experience, and I don't know, have you had people who were more urban coming to work with you and do they find 
a sense of a land-based spirituality. It doesn't have to have a focus even. It can be a kind of agnostic, atheist, land-based spirituality, but just being with the land. Does that give them a more systemic view? I've got three S's written down here, which is systems, spiritual, and service. That sense that once you are spending every day with your hands in the soil and and being aware of when it rains and of what the water does on the land, does that help a sense of a systems thinking that then begins to bring us more spiritual and then creates that sense? I, I have a vision of moving beyond universal basic income to universal basic services. And of course, one of the absolute core universal basic services is access to good, actually nutritious, not poisonous food. And that, mm. that, that being part of that service becomes part of our aims, goals and values in life. So that was quite mm. a broad question. But are you finding that if people come onto the land, that they find a connection to the land? Yes, I think so. And I think the the more that you are, you know, it's difficult if you've got someone who just comes for a day or two and it's like, oh, you know, nice trees and, you know, what a nice sunny day. The real work is if you're living and breathing yeah, it long November. term and being part of the cycles. But, but you know, people, I mean, it's funny, this whole sort of notion of bucolic idols. I mean, I, I think there is a positive side that we should emphasize. I mean, I, I sort of, I try and avoid that because I think, you know, there's so much sort of more kind of hard graft kind of stuff, why we need to embrace being a good keystone species that isn't about, you know, some kind of up in the air sort of idol. But nevertheless, you know, for when I was younger for a, a year or two, I had an office job in London and, um, you know, nobody ever asked if they could, uh, come free and um, sit on next to me on my desk in an open plan office, whereas so many people want to come and work the land. And I think we need to embrace that and acknowledge that, you know, there is something, you know, that, that bucolic <laughs> is not necessarily bad, but there's a lot of hard graft and a lot of thinking and, 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 and also being aware, I think, of the, the fossil fuel basis of modern society. So it's very easy to reach for a, a fossil fuel solution, you know, whether that's using a machine or using some kind of chemical product. But as soon as you're aware that you're doing that, mm. it immediately kind of keys you into ecological thinking. I mean, the other thing that's stuck in my mind very much there is we have a forest school on our land uh, with um, you know, qualified forest school teachers who bring kids in from local schools and often kids who are kind of struggling in the, the sort of mainstream educational yes. system. And one thing they do is is something like picking up. I remember one of them telling me that sometimes you can give some of these kids who've never really participate, you know, never really engage with nature at all, give them a woodlouse and put it in their hand. And just seeing this other creature with its autonomous existence is absolutely gobsmacking for these kids. And I think it's kind of keying into that wonder and keying into that sense of, you know, I, I talk in the book about autonomy and community. I think it's kind of important to be able to, you know, see ourselves as autonomous protagonists and take care of ourselves, but to be aware that inherently we are part of a human community and also a much wider non-human community and yeah there's there's endless ways that we can key into that but i think being in nature and particularly not you know as i say not just this sort of idle contemplation of going 
for a nice walk in, you know, like your, your Ansel Adams sort of example is a great one, you know, not, not to sort of screen other people out or, you know, the, the, the indigenous dwellers out and sort of wander at the mountains, but actually to think, okay, how would I get food in this environment? How do I create a livelihood that doesn't destroy this environment? is really important and i think you know even if you know if you've uh, the starting place is you know some herbs on your windowsill or you know some veg in your front garden or an allotment or there's endless ways we can start making ourselves a part of that you know we've got as we say given the challenges we face and the the time frame it, it is daunting but um that's where we start i, I really do believe so brilliant Okay, that does feel like a good place to end. Not that I don't have a lot more questions, but we'll come back for a third time at some point in the future, maybe when you've written your next book, because you seem very prolific. Maybe, yeah. Super impressed that you managed to farm and write at the same time. So, Chris, is there any last words that you wanted to say, or was that a good place for you to end also? Uh, I'm I'm pretty happy with that, yeah, unless there's any particular burning questions that I didn't answer. No, I think we I think we covered quite a lot of ground and I think it was really fantastic and useful. In that case, thank you very much for coming on to the Accidental Gods podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure. And that is it for another week. Enormous thanks to Chris for taking the time to write this book. It was originally going to be a blog or a pamphlet in the kind of 18th century tradition of a few words on why Mr. Mumbio is completely wrong. Um, And instead, it turned into this very beautiful, incisive, thoughtful look at why Mr. Mombio is entirely wrong, but also how we could live that is better. I really don't want to live in concrete boxes with headsets on, cruising a metaverse while my body turns into a blob, fed with yet another product of the industrial food system every single product of which has so far made us very, very sick. There is no processed food that is good to eat and quite why anybody thinks that growing protein in a vat and missing out all of the other things that we have evolved to need is going to be a good thing. This is beyond me. It can't be. It's a logical fallacy as well as being spiritually utterly destructive. So, Thank you to Chris for delving into Mumbia's book in ways that I could not because it just does too many bad things to my blood pressure and for having the critical thinking skills to lay out not only where the logical fallacies are, but also how we could be different and how we could be systemically different because I hope was clear in our conversation. This is not a single issue problem. We are in the middle of a polycrisis and fixing one tiny part because it happens to fit the agenda of people who think they're going to make a lot of money from selling us manufactured proteins is not the answer and can never be. We need to start thinking critically and systemically. And if we can begin to think as a good keystone species, then I think we could have a way forward. Feels good to me. So have a read of Chris's book. It's out early July. You can pre-order it now. I will put the links to the paperback version, the ebook version, and the audio version read by Chris in the show notes. Head there, order it now.
That is your homework for this week, people. And before we go, Chris and I will be at the March's Real Food and Farming Conference at Lindley Hall in Shropshire on the 15th of September, probably discussing some of the things that we covered in this podcast, but more likely, I think, we'll just be talking about regenerative farming and how and why it works and what a small farm future could look like. So if you're in the West Midlands of the UK around the second weekend of September, we would love to see you there. That's our public service announcement over. And we will be back next week as ever with another conversation. Huge thanks to Alan Lowell's of Airtight Studios in Manchester for the sound production, to Cara C for the music at the head and foot, to Faith Tillery for setting up our YouTube channel with huge amounts of work. Faith has moved all of the audios to videos, not videos of me, you will be glad to know, because that would be a deeply unpleasant experience, but stills with an interesting little circle that does weebly things as people talk. It's lovely to look at, and I gather a lot of people listen to podcasts on YouTube. So you can do that. I will put a link in the show notes, although there is also now a link on all of the pages that have been transferred over. So you can go and catch up on past podcasts on YouTube, if that's a thing. Who knows? Anyway, we're trying. Beyond that, thanks to Anne Thomas and Jill Coombs for the transcripts. I've lost track of who's doing what this week. And as always, thank you to you for listening. And if you know of anybody else who wants to know how and why becoming a good keystone species could be the future of humanity, then please do send them this link. And that's it for now. See you next week. Thank you and goodbye.